Well, good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, looking at verses 5 through 11 today. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 398. And while you're turning there, let me give you an update on Pastor Scott. Of course, you know that uh, he's in Africa uh, for a couple of weeks, training a group of pastors in uh, expositional preaching. Then there will also be a course, I, I think, on Old Testament surveying. Uh, Scott uh, told me a couple of days ago that he had fallen very ill. Sometimes this happens on overseas trips. And so he was asking us to pray for him uh, to recover his strength. Well, I was able to speak to Scott uh, this morning. And he did have enough strength to preach in, uh, in a church this morning. Uh, they're five hours ahead of us where he is. So he was able to preach. And he said for the first time in all the years that he's been doing this, the congregation gave him an honorarium after he spoke. And this, this was a, an unexpected honor. The trouble was that, that the gift he received was a live chicken. And uh, as, he, as he noted, it's very difficult to pack a live chicken in a suitcase and uh, bring it back to the States with you. So they're going to have a great feast later this, uh, this week. And I imagine that chicken will be the guest of honor. So we'll remind you it is... Uh, Pastor Appreciation Month here in October, and I've not received a chicken from, from anyone yet. So just, just going to put that thought out there and you can do with it as you see fit. Well, I think with all of that out of the way, we better begin in a word of prayer, reset our minds, and then we will engage with this text. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for all of your gifts to us. We thank you for the gift of laughter. We thank you for calling us into your service and deploying us all over this community through our vocations and sending some of us overseas to minister to your church. Overseas, and we, we thank you for all of this. We thank you for the joy of fellowship with like-minded believers. We thank you for the gift of your written word. And Lord, as we turn to this small portion of your word today, might you help us to engage our minds. Might you help us to understand the text. And then to take the, the truths that it contains and to, to make it a part of, of our own lives. Lord, we pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. So many of you know the name of Martin Luther. He was born in Germany in 1483. And as he grew up, he thought he was going to pursue a career in law. But one day in young adulthood, he was walking home late at night and he got caught in a thunderstorm. And suddenly this giant bolt of lightning struck right in front of him and he went into a panic. And in his panic, he prayed to St. Anne. And he said, St. Anne, if you spare me tonight, I'll become a monk. And of course, his life was spared, and he kept his vow. Martin Luther became a Catholic monk. And he put his heart and soul into that work. 
He fasted more than anybody else. He denied himself sleep. He went on pilgrimages. Everything he could possibly do as a monk. And what he was trying to do was earn a place in heaven. He thought that if he did enough good works, that, that God would see him as a righteous man and welcome him into the, the gates of heaven. Well, eventually, Martin Luther was appointed as a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. And as he began to prepare for the classes he was assigned, he studied the book of Psalms, and then he went to the book of Romans. And his study of Romans changed his life. He came to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And here's what he read. He read, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, which is to say are declared righteous by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might, that is God might, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And as Martin Luther read these words, it was as if the scales fell from his eyes. And he came to see that his entire pursuit to this point had all been a waste. He found out that there is no way for us to be made righteous in God's sight. Rather, we must be declared righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. In other words, a righteous standing before God is not something that we, that we earn, but rather it's a gift that we receive from God. Our righteous standing is a gift from God. And the, the way to receive that gift is by faith alone. We receive it in faith, trusting in the all-sufficiency of Christ's righteousness and of his atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Martin Luther finally came to that understanding. And he was born again. He became a new creation in Christ. And his whole life changed after that. Well, about the same time that Martin Luther was going through this transformation, the Pope in Rome was renewing a building project. He wanted to finish St. Peter's Basilica there at the Vatican. Okay, this is that massive church building that, uh, that the Pope resides at. He wanted to finish that building project. And so he sent out his representatives to go all through Europe and to start raising funds to complete the church building. And he offered an incentive to anybody who would want to give. He, he gave his representatives these little slips of paper, which were called indulgences. And on these slips of paper, the Pope offered forgiveness of sins. And so the Pope's reps would go through Europe into all the towns and villages and hamlets, offering these little slips of paper. Give us money to finish the building project, and in exchange, we'll give you these little slips of paper for giving your sins. 
It was really a horrific, a horrific program. Give me money and I will give you forgiveness. That's what was being offered. And of course, the medieval Catholic Church just raked in the money through this program. Well, in Martin Luther's neck of the woods, there was one particularly effective salesman. He was a guy named John Tetzel. And he went through, and, and he even came up with a little sales jingle. He said something like this. Whenever a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. In other words, give me your money, and if you do, you can get your loved ones out of purgatory. And so these indulgences could be used not just for yourself, but they could be used for those that you loved. Tetzel made a fortune with his little jingle. And as Martin Luther, this now born-again Christian, saw what was going on here, his heart absolutely broke. Because he understood that, that salvation is a gift of God. And the only thing required is to receive it by faith. That's all you have to do. And the thought that, that a church would tell people to, to perform good works or to give money for forgiveness, for salvation, absolutely broke his heart. And so, because he was a uh, scholarly man, he decided to respond by taking a pen and paper and writing out all the reasons why indulgences were wrong. He came up with 95 reasons we call them his 95 Theses. He wrote them all down, explaining salvation is a free gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. He wrote it all down. And then he posted it on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. That was kind of the, like the public bulletin board in that day. So he posted it there on the, on the door, and he meant to start a public debate. Well, of course, the church reacted very violently to this. And Martin Luther was, was brought up on heresy charges. Eventually, he was excommunicated from the church. And, of course, he famously took his excommunication papers and he burned them in a public ceremony. Martin Luther posted those 95 theses on October 31st of 1517. Our culture celebrates Halloween on that night. We know it as Reformation Day. The posting of those 95 theses marked the symbolic beginning of the Protestant Reformation, something which began as a renewal movement within the medieval Catholic Church, but which would soon result in a new separated church. First, the Lutheran church named after Martin Luther. Of course, Luther himself hated the fact that a church was named after him. He said, the church belongs to Christ, not to me. But it was called the Lutheran church. And then later, the Reformed church and all of its various branches. And the free church tradition would come out of that. But through that one man's action, a movement was started which changed the course of an entire generation. And that generation impacted all subsequent generations so that today this very church is an heir of that 16th century reformation. 
Many of us remember Martin Luther for his brave actions. We remember his public speeches. We remember the 95 Theses, the books that he wrote, the debates he engaged in. We remember the, the burning of the excommunication papers. Uh, we remember his commentary on the book of Romans and all of his amazing feats. We remember the church that he founded, which now bears his name. What he is not as well remembered for, but what he deserves to be remembered for, is that he was also a man of prayer. A man of prayer. In fact, on one occasion he said this, As is the business of tailors to make clothes and cobblers to make shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. And one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther is this one. Apparently he was heading into a very, very busy day. And either in conversation with somebody or somebody overhearing him, he's quoted as saying this. Work, work, work. From early until late. In fact, I have so much to do today, I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. So for Martin Luther, a, a busy schedule was not an excuse to neglect prayer. But rather, the busier you got, the more you needed to pray. Because Luther understood that his project, okay, this, this Reformation project, ultimately this was going to be a work of God. And if it was going to have any lasting effect, God would have to be the primary mover. And so every day he bathed his work in prayer. Friends, today we are back in the book of Nehemiah. This is week two of a series that is supposed to take us 14 weeks. Nehemiah is a book about Reformation. It's about how God used Nehemiah to complete the national Reformation of Israel in his day. And we just began this series last week. And we ask the question, so how does a Reformation begin? How does it begin? And here was the answer. Reformation can begin when a man of God, understanding the needs of the hour, resolves to act no matter the personal cost. I'll repeat that. Reformation can begin when a man of God, who understands the needs of the hour, resolves to act no matter the personal cost. And friends, it's just as simple as that. God can spark a reformation with just one person. God can start with one person. One who has been transformed by the grace of God, who is possessed by a love for God and for his people. Somebody who has reforming zeal. They want to see God do something great in their generation. They want to see people coming to faith in God. They want to see those already believing in God renewed and reformed by His Word. Just one person who wants to be used of God to spark a movement that will spark reform in a whole generation that will have a ripple effect to all generations. One person. Well, today we're advancing to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And we're going to ask the next question about Reformation. We're going to ask the question, so what is the first action 
that a reformer must take? Of course, the answer to that is prayer. His first action must be prayer. And not just a, a short, casual kind of a prayer, or not just something you would tack on to your morning devotions, but I mean real time-consuming, energy-burning prayer for God to do a work in your generation, a work of reformation and revival. It takes prayer to get it started. And what is prayer? Well, simply put, prayer is the act of communicating to God all of the righteous desires of your heart with the expectation that God is going to hear you and respond to you. And why is it important? It's important because ultimately Reformation is a work of God. And so if anything is going to happen, it will have to be God moving among his people. It'll have to be a work of God. And the exciting thing is that God actually promises that he will use our prayers to accomplish his purposes. So do you want to see the people of God in your generation, reformed by the word of God? Do you want to see the gospel spreading out into new territory? Do you want to see the church of Christ on the offensive for a change and not on defense? Then you've got to pray for it. You've got to pray fervently, and you've got to start your work with prayer, believing that God will use your prayers to do his good work. Matthew 7, verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Matthew 21, 22 says, Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you ask in faith. And James 5, 16 says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I love this quote from Pastor E.M. Bounds. He writes, Prayer is the voice that goes into God's ear, and it lives as long as God's ear is open to holy pleas, as long as God's heart is alive to holy things, which is to say, it lives forever. Here's another quote from Bounds. He writes, When God's house on earth is a house of prayer, then God's house in heaven is busy and powerful in its plans and movements. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be, and the mightier the forces against evil will be everywhere. And one more quote from Bounds. Prayer puts God in full force in the world. To a prayerful man, God is present in realized force. The one who can wield the power of prayer is the strong one, the holy one in Christ's kingdom. He is one of God's heroes, God's saints, God's servants, and God's agents. So you see, friends, if we want God to do a new work in our generation, reviving his people, reforming them by his word, if we want to see the gospel reaching new territory in our generation, we're going to have to pray. We're going to have to pray believing the promises of God that if we do this in faith, that he will start a work among us. How exactly should a reformer pray, though? What form should our prayers take? Well, here in our text, I believe Nehemiah shows us the way. 
As soon as Nehemiah came to realize the needs confronting God's people in his day, he immediately dropped down to his knees and he began to pray. And we have here in our verses a record of Nehemiah's prayers. We find that his prayer consisted of five parts. Let's quickly work through each of these parts and let us use this as a model for our own prayer lives as we seek reformation in our day. First, you'll notice that Nehemiah begins simply by invoking God's name. Verse 5 reads, And I said, quote, O Lord God of heaven. See, he just begins his prayer by addressing God, just like we would do in conversation. If you wanted to get my attention, you would say, Pastor Brandon, come here. That would get my attention. We do the same in prayer. We call to God by name. Here, Nehemiah uses a compound name for God. He calls him the Lord God of heaven. You'll notice the word Lord is in all caps. That's because it's the translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. Yahweh. That's a name that literally means I am. It speaks to God's infinity. God dwells in the eternal present. He has always existed. He will always exist. He is self-existing, self-sustaining. He is the self-revealing God. And then he calls him the God of heaven. This is meant to contrast the God that he is praying to with all of the gods that the Persians worshipped. Theirs were gods of the earth, gods made of wood and stone, gods of men's imaginations. But he says, no, my God is the God of heaven. He dwells above the earth. He's enthroned above the stars. Both of these are names that God reveals to man. He says, this, these are my names. I am Yahweh, the I am. I am the true and living God, the God of heaven. And so Nehemiah begins his prayer addressing God in this way. Friends, as we begin our own prayers to God for reformation, we would do well to follow Nehemiah's example. Begin your prayer by invoking God's name. Invoke the names that he himself has revealed to us in the scriptures. Names that speak to his power and his sovereignty, his infinity, his ability to do anything that we ask of him. And speak to God with a spirit of absolute reverence. You'll notice he doesn't take the casual approach that so many church leaders do today. He doesn't call God Daddy, Hey God. He doesn't do any of this. God is not deserving of that. He deserves our highest reverence. He calls him the I Am, the God of heaven. Friends, let us have a big view of God. Speak to him with the honor that he is due God would be pleased with a prayer that begins like that. But then we move on and we notice the next thing Nehemiah's prayer does. He begins to exalt in the attributes of God. So calls God by name, delights in his attributes. He says, O Lord God of heaven, you are the great and awesome God. The word translated great here just means big and strong. He's the omnipotent God. The God who can do anything. The God who, who will not falter. No matter how big your request is, He is capable of answering it as long as it aligns with His will and not just your own. He's the great God. And He's the awesome God, which means He is awe-inspiring. 
in the scriptures when even the holiest of men get just the slightest glimpse of the glory of God, what do they do? Immediately they fall on their faces like dead men. He is the awe-inspiring God, the God whose whose attributes and works leave his people wide-eyed and slack-jawed, falling on their faces before him. He's a great God. You notice that Nehemiah moves next to God's moral attributes. He's great and he is good. He's the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He is the faithful God, the trustworthy God, the God who loves his people, and that love never wavers. Nehemiah is probably also thinking about Israel's national covenant with God here. God had pledged himself to Israel. Israel had pledged themselves back to God. Now, Israel had failed. They forsook every every part of their covenant. But God had been faithful to every single letter. He's the faithful God. So God is great, and He is good. Which is to say that God is holy. He's holy. God is separate from and above the world that He has made. We are the creatures. He's the creator. We are finite. He is infinite. We are sinful. He is sinless. He is in a category all to Himself. Friends, if Reformation is ever to take hold of the American church, I believe it will begin with a new appreciation for the holiness of God. Seeing Him for who He truly is and coming to Him in prayer, invoking His names in reverence and delighting in His holiness. And Friends, I believe that if we can get a new sense of God's holiness, it will also drive us to start confessing our sins, which is also necessary if Reformation is to take hold. And this is just what Nehemiah does next. Look down at verse 6. It says, God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people, Israel, your servants. You see, he has invoked God's name. He has worshipped God for his greatness and his goodness. And now he is pleading with God. God, please, please incline yourself to me. Hear my requests. And he begins confessing sins. He says, listen to me confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I in my father's house have sinned. Notice a three-part confession here. First, he confesses the sinfulness of his nation. He says, the sins of the people of Israel. And indeed, their sins were great. I've already mentioned that they violated every term of the covenant they had made with God. They were supposed to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they had no love in their hearts for God at all. They paid Him lip service, but their hearts were far from Him. They chased after other gods. They worshipped idols. They went so far as to sacrifice their own children to placate their idols. That's how far they had fallen. The sins of Israel were very great. If a national 
revival and reformation were to take hold of this nation, it would have to start with them confessing their sins. God, forgive us for what we have done. Forgive us for our unfaithfulness to you. Then you notice the second part of his confession. Next, he includes himself as a part of that sinful nation. He says, we, we have sinned against you. So Nehemiah was an Israelite, and and by virtue of that, he was a part of this corporate body. And so Nehemiah, he does not stand apart from the Israelites saying, God, they need forgiveness. They're really bad. No, he says, God, I'm one of them. We are all sinners against you. We all need your grace. And then he really personalizes it in the third part. He says, even I, I and my father's house have sinned. So not only does he admit that he is part of this corporate body that has failed God, but that he personally and his household, they have participated in the sinfulness of the nation. They were all sinners before God. Now what is sin? John Piper defines it this way, Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. When we do not have regard for the greatest of all beings, the one who made us, who loves us, who offers us his very salvation, his very life, to look at him as no one of great importance, to spend our lives chasing after lesser things. That is sin, and that is our failure toward God. And we are all implicated in this. Nehemiah was right to include himself. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 explains the consequences. It says, The wages of our sin is death, separation from God. You see, this is why the Israelites have been driven into exile. It's not because God had been unfaithful to them. It's because they had been unfaithful to God. They had made promises to God. God had made promises to them. God had kept his promises. They had broken theirs. And in consequence of that, they lost their monarchy. They lost their temple. They lost their capital city. They lost all their land. They were scattered into exile, thrown to the four winds of pagan empires. Their sins were very great. They needed to confess those sins and be forgiven so they could be reconciled to God. Friends, Reformation cannot begin until we're ready to do this, until we're ready to admit our truths about ourselves, to admit that God is holy, but we are not, that the pain and suffering that we endure in life is not God's fault. It's because we live in a sin-cursed world. 
than to call out to God as the solution to our problem, not as the cause of our problems. Friends, as the leader of God's people in his day, Nehemiah came to God on behalf of them all, confessing sins. Christian, are there things that you ought to confess today? Are there things that you need to talk to God about? Are there, are there sins that you have been hiding from others, but God knows are there? You who are heads of households, maybe there are family sins that you need to confess. Church leaders, maybe there are congregational sins that you should take to the throne of grace and ask for God's forgiveness of. Then and only then will we be ready for a reformation to take hold. This is what Nehemiah does. He invokes God's names. He delights in God's attributes. Then he immediately confesses sin. In now verses 8 and 9, we see that he offers his righteous requests. He says, now remember, God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, keep my commandments and do them. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Here Nehemiah is actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Nehemiah is praying the promises of God. When Israel made this national covenant with God, the covenant said, if Israel is faithful, they will have their land and enjoy prosperity. If they were unfaithful, they would lose everything and be scattered to the four winds. Well, they'd been unfaithful, and now they were in exile. So Nehemiah is asking God to fulfill his promise to restore them. He says, God, in your word you say that if your people will confess their sins that you will reconcile with them. You'll bring them back into their land. You'll be their God again. They'll be your people. And Nehemiah says, God, we have done that now. I've prayed to you. I've, I've confessed our sins. I know we're guilty. I've asked you to forgive. So now, will you fulfill your promise, God? Will you restore us now? Will you do a new work among us? He prays the promises of God. Friends, we can do that too. You know, it's good for us to come to God with our own words, but it's also good for us to come with the words of God himself and to come to God in prayer saying, God, in your word, you declare that this is your will. This is your will for your church, for your people. And God, here are the promises that you have made. I now ask you to fulfill your word. Answer this. Fulfill your promise. Now, in my seeing, let me witness you fulfilling your own words, God. I believe God would be pleased to answer a prayer like that if it's prayed with reverence and in faith. If you look at verse 10, Nehemiah adds a, a further motivation for God to act. He says, they, that is the Israelites, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. God, don't forget who these people are. They were slaves in Egypt long ago, but you rescued them. You saved them. You made them your own. Don't forget the special relationship that you have with these people. God, let that motivate you 
to save them again. Friends, it's good for us to do the same. As we pray to God, we can delight in all of His past work in our lives, individually and in our families and as a congregation. Just remember the good works of God and say, God, renew your works among us. Don't forsake your people. And then finally, verse 11, he prays for success. This is the final part of his prayer. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight hear your name, and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is King Artaxerxes, his boss. You see, Nehemiah is about to get up off of his knees, and he's going to march into the throne room of the most powerful man in the world. And he's going to ask that king to be let go of his job as cupbearer so that he can take the long trek to the Holy Land and help complete the reformation of God's people in Israel. That's what he's about to do. And so he concludes his prayer with, God, please, please give me success. Give me success. Let me have a part in the reformation of your people. Friends, as we conclude here, we see that the first action a godly leader must take if he desires reformation is to pray. It's to pray. Because if anything great is to be accomplished, it will only be through the power of prayer. How often we think of prayer as the least productive thing we can do with our time, when in truth, it may be the most productive. And so, friends, let us learn how to pray. Let us learn how to set aside a portion of each day to engage God in prayer. And let us follow the pattern that we see exemplified here in Nehemiah's prayer. Begin by addressing God by name, the names he's revealed in Scripture. Then exalt in God's attributes. Offer your requests. Confess your sins. Plead his promises. Ask for success. Pray like Nehemiah prayed. And then what should a godly reformer do after he's prayed or perhaps while he is praying? Well, then he should roll up his sleeves, put feet to those prayers. Again, verse 11, his final request is, grant me mercy in the sight of King Artaxerxes. He is praying for reformation, but he also wants to be a part of it. We pray, and then we get to work. Get off our knees and get on our feet. Next time we're together, we will follow Nehemiah into the throne room of the king as he makes this request. For now, let's close our time in prayer. Lord, we do thank you so much for the book of Nehemiah, a book about how you used one man to complete a national reformation. And Lord, how we want a reformation of your church in this day. The church is struggling today, Lord, at least in America. Her numbers are dwindling. She feels as if she is on the defense she has traded confidence in your word for confidence in gimmicks, gimmicks to grow a crowd but not to make disciples. Lord, the church has, has lost her way. Would you please do a work in your church today? Would you please use us? Give us a new awareness of your holiness. Give us a, a sense of our corporate and personal sin. Give us the grace to confess and forsake our sins. 
Lord, help us to plead your promises. Remind us of what those promises are. Help us to pray your words back to you, knowing that what you have said is your will. We can pray with confidence when we pray your words. And Lord, give us success. And help us, Lord, to be courageous as Nehemiah was, to get on our feet and to take the concrete actions necessary to be part of the answer to that prayer. Use us, Lord. Use us in a great way in this day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.